Good morning, everyone. Quick blurb, couple announcements. Um, I probably should have stood up here when Landon was looking for some filler space. Um, first of all, thank you to everybody that was helping with the renovation uh, at the building, still working on it. We're getting so close, so close. Uh, I believe all the drywall's up now. Now we just a little cleanup, a little mudding, a little painting, carpet down, and we're good to roll. So it's so close. So thank you for those that have been helping. We appreciate that. The other thing I want to mention is at the movie theater out here at Sky Cinema, sometimes it's hard to find a good movie to go watch. And right now, a lot of you are just endangered with a lot of football, and you're all excited about that. But if you're looking for something to do and you want to go to Sky Cinema, there's a movie called War Room that is out right now. Maybe some of you went somewhere else to see it. Uh, the Sky Cinema actually called me up and said, hey, let people know War Room is here in Wasyan. It's a great movie. The creators of Courageous and um, Fireproof, they're the same people that put that movie out, put this movie out. It was number one in the box office over Labor Day weekend. A movie about prayer. Really? I, we're hungry. People are crying out for this kind of entertainment. So it's a good movie. If you got nothing going on, I don't know how long it's going to be out there. I don't know if it was just this weekend only. I don't know. But I just want to give you that heads up if you're looking for something to do later today besides your Sunday nap, okay? Just saying, all right? Um, you know, I was thinking about this past Sunday when Landon preached on justification. I mean, what a great message God laid on his heart, and he pronounced it so clearly, and, and it was awesome. And he talked about our position in Christ before God. And I appreciated Landon preaching on this truth because a lot of times we, we talk about these things, and, you know, the churchy word is justification that was used, okay? Just as if I've never sinned. My position before God is holy and blameless. But what Landon didn't realize when he preached that message was that it was a lead into what I was going to start preaching on. Uh, he didn't know that. And I was like, as he's sitting there preaching, I'm going, oh, Landon, thank you for setting the stage. This is awesome. The great truth, foundational truth. Because we are justified, because we stand before God holy and blameless, guess what we get to do now? We get to live a victorious life. And that's what we're going to be talking about over the next few weeks is how we can live, and I'm going to call it an undefeated life. Now, all of you, all of you fans of Ohio State football, okay, you sort of, I'm just going to say this, live it up, okay? You had this undefeated season, okay, and then you continue to win. You have no clue what it means to lose. And just think about that. And it's like, it's so natural. So anytime your team is losing, you're like, <gasps> Sell everything, empty out the bank, the world's coming to an end. It's like, it's, it's a loss. I don't know if you know what that is. Um, any fans of any other sports, we get it, okay? I was a Cubs fan, still am a Cubs fan, okay? For years, like, lost? Let me tell you what that is, okay? Um, but to live an undefeated life, some of you say undefeated. I get that. That's awesome, right? But we never relate that to our faith. And I want to do that, you know, as again, Landon preached from Colossians 1, 20, 21, opened our eyes to our position in Jesus Christ before God. Justification, our standing before God, holy and blameless. Uh, it was funny. We got done sermon last Sunday, church, and went out and grabbed something real quick and ran into Mr. Leatherman, the principal at the high school. It's like, we were just talking about you. Going to the principal's office. He's like, what? He's like, come to church. Right now, right? Um, he doesn't go to our church. I wasn't hitting on him for certain. I didn't come here. So anyway, but man, I talked about that, going to the principal's office, standing before God. And, and I was just thinking about that. It's like, now that we know that truth, how should we live? 
We should live our life to the fullest, in a victorious way. And, uh, and I was looking at John 10.10. 10. And if you've been here, part of this church for the years, you're like, Rex, that's like, is that your life verse? You're always saying John 10.10 10 from up front. And John 10.10 10 says, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Jesus says, but I've come to give life and give it abundantly. But the multiple times that I use that verse in sermon, I'm usually referencing the thief, our opponent, Satan, the adversary, and what he's trying to do in our life. And, and I think about that, you know, the word for thief, as it describes our adversary, Satan, that the Greek word is kleptos. And we sort of look at that, kleptos, kleptos, klepto, kleptomaniac. Somebody who's stealing, somebody who's taking. That's, the, that's one of the missions of our adversary, the devil, is to steal us away from God, to take us away from an abundant life. He doesn't want us to have that. He wants to destroy our life. And so a lot of times, I mention John 10.10, 10, I talk about the adversary. But what I forget, what I neglect, is to share that second part of the verse. That's what we're going to focus on. Jesus said, I've come to give life. Give it to its fullest, an abundant life. One translation says, my purpose is to give them a rich and satisfying life. And I thought about that. My purpose, the purpose of Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I've come to seek and save those who are lost. He wants us to save us from hell. He wants to give us eternal life in heaven. But more than that, he says, but you know what? It's not just about that. What's going to happen down the road, it's about right now. I'm seeking you out. I'm saving you for eternity. But for right now, while you are living on this planet, another part of my mission is to make sure you understand you have an abundant life to its fullest, to its greatest extent. Do we really understand what that means? Now, if you were in some churches, they, they, you'd hear this preaching. and think, Oh, an abundant life. I'm going to be rich. The Christian life is all about riches and, and possessing things. Like, no, that's not abundance that we're talking about. It is a rich and satisfying life, but not financially, but as a whole. And I want you to think for a moment, okay, in your life. When you were a little kid and you are dreaming about what you wanted to do when you grew up, what did your dreams consist of? Think about finding that special person, right? Having a family. Maybe your job and occupation, like, when I grow up, this is what I'm dreaming. This is the kind of house I want, the kind of car I want to drive, the kind of people I want to be associated with. You all dreaming about, I mean, remember those dreams? Some of you are still maybe dreaming, right? Some of you are daydreaming right now. Bring it back, bring it back. What about making a difference? Was that part of your dream, like, when I get older, I want to impact other lives by what? Was that part of your dreams? I heard this quote, said this, dreaming about a great life is easier than building one. Isn't that true? Dreaming about a great life is easier than building one. I think we would all agree to that. Because we know it's not easy at times. We often entertain the idea of giving up on our dreams. As a matter of fact, some of us have already abandoned our dreams. It's like, well, I wanted to pursue this in life. I dreamt of this, but then this happened, this happened, and here's where I'm at right now. So forget my dreams. And we've abandoned them. But let me ask you something. What if it's still possible to pursue those dreams? 
What if some of those things that you've sort of said, I don't know, what if they're still there? What if God laid upon your heart those dreams when you were a child, but you took a different route? But God says, I put that dream there for a purpose. See, we live unaware sometimes, I believe, of our position in Jesus Christ, that, that justification, that once we're forgiven, once we humbly admit that we have sinned, we've messed up, and we ask for forgiveness, now we now stand holy and blameless before God, our victorious God, and God is sitting there saying, I'm undefeated. Name a battle I've lost. Can you name one battle I've lost? And we would all sit and say, no. God's undefeated. And we're not talking about one season, one year. We're talking eternity, undefeated. And our undefeated God, as we just sang, I love this, goes what? Goes before us and goes with us and goes beside us and goes behind us. Our undefeated God is with us and in us. Jesus says, God's son says, my purpose is to give you an abundant life. My purpose is to help you find a rich and satisfying life. Pastor Kevin Myers wrote in a book called Home Run. He shared four key principles to help us remember what it means to serve a victorious God and to live an undefeated life to live a life that's supreme and superior. And, and, and I was reading through his book, and I said, I like these. I'm going to share those four points with you this morning and throw it in with what I want to share with you. So here, here's the four points I want you to hear this morning, okay? Here's the first thing, okay? God loves you more than you'll ever know. Let me hear you say, God loves me. Here. Let's try to get one, two, three. Now let's say it with conviction because you're like, God loves me. It's the God of the universe. The victorious, undefeated God of this universe loves you, okay? Now, let's go back to the days when you pulled out of elementary, you got your little Valentine box, okay? And that special girl, that little boy, whatever you liked, had the crush on, put that little Valentine in there. They all had to because the teacher made everybody put one in, right? But you got that one and you pulled it out. It's like, ah, they love me, right? Okay, now with that little giddiness of a child, okay, let me hear you say, God loves me. One, two, three. God loves me. This is an awesome thing to think about. If I were to say to you, find a verse in the Bible where you know that God loves you, we do what? We go to John 3, 16, right? For God so loves the world, which is us, right? That he gave his one and only son. But let me point you to another verse. 1 John 4, 4 10 says this. This is real love. Because we, we, we're, we're faked out a lot of time on what love is. Love is, well, if you give me this, I'll give you something. I love you. I love you. We say it. I love pizza. Okay, I love my wife. Which one's love? Okay. This is real love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us first and sent his son, this is the key part, as a sacrifice to take away our sins. That's the love of God. God says, I love you so much, I'm sending my one and only son to be a sacrifice. Not on loan, not just to hang out with, but to sacrifice his life, to go through pain and agony. That's love. God loves me. Let's say it with conviction again. God loves me. Here we go. Ready? One, two, three. God loves me. It's an awesome thing. Here's the second thing I want you to hear. There is more to God 
There's more to God. What do I mean by that? I think we tend to put God in a box. Matter of fact, a lot of times people say, and I've caught myself saying this, and I had to really think this through, so think it through with me. A lot of times we say, well, I don't think God would do that. Haven't we said that before? Maybe it's about a certain subject or topic people are talking about, and we're like, no, I don't think God would do that. I don't think God's like that. Can I just say something real quick? Because it did hit me, because I was told this. I was like, then you've put God in a box. You're worshiping another God. If we are defining what we think God will and will not do, we have now put God in a box. How do we know that God wouldn't do that? How do we know God won't do something? How do we know God would do something even greater and bigger than we've ever dreamed of? But we're just like, well, I don't know if God would do that. And you know what? Open up your eyes. Maybe you're worshiping the wrong God. God's bigger than that. There's more to God than we can fully understand and comprehend. Psalm 145.3 says this. Great is the Lord. He is most worthy of praise. No one can measure his greatness. No one can measure his greatness. Think about that. Can anybody here walk into Chief, Walmart, Kroger, wherever, okay, and go up to the fresh produce, and they see that apples are $1.69 a pound. Ooh, goodbye, I'm getting some now, okay? So I grab three, four, five, put them in a bag, and I'm thinking, ooh, just a second. 2.34 pounds. That's exactly what I got in my hands right here. I have no clue. I pull up the bag, I says, it feels sort of heavy, okay? What do I have to do? I have to put it on the scale so I exactly know. And there's always scales right there in the fresh produce so I can measure out how much I've got so I know how much I'm going to pay. And what's the nice thing is, is I don't have to memorize that because what happens is because when I get to check out, they have their own scales. They set them on. It measures it out and tells me the price. I would love to be able to measure and say, I know exactly what it's going to be. I know how much it's going to cost, all that, but I can't measure. Not one of us in this room can look at something and exactly measure out what it's going to be. But God can. God can look at everything and measure out and tell you to the exact weight what something is going to be, to the exact length what it's going to be, to the exact height what it's going to be. He can measure it. Isaiah chapter 40, verses 12 to 15 says this. Who else has had the o held the oceans in his hand? Think about this. Who can hold the oceans in his hand? Anybody here do that? God can. Who has measured off the heavens with his fingers? Who else knows the weight of the earth or has weighed the mountains and the hills on a scale? Who's able to advise the spirit of the Lord? Who knows enough to give God advice or teach him? Has the Lord ever needed anyone's advice? Does he need instruction about what is good? Did someone teach him what's right or show him the path of justice? No, for all the nations of the world are but a drop in the bucket. They're nothing more than dust on the scales. He picks up the whole earth as if it were a grain of sand. That's how big God is. There's so much more to God than we can fully understand. We think we got God figured out. Well, I think God is like mm, bigger. Next time you think, well, I think God just stop right there and just say, bigger. There's so much more to God. The measure of God is bigger than we'll ever know. And the funny thing is, the greater you know about God, the more you learn about God, the less you know about God. 
Do you, you ever get to that point? It's like you just learn something. It's like, man, it's like I'm learning more about God. It's like I feel like I don't know much about God anymore because there's so much as you continue to discover who God is. God loves you more than you'll ever know. And there's more to God than you'll ever know. Here's the third thing. God has put more in us than we'll ever know. We know that when we confess with our mouths and believe in our hearts that Jesus Christ is Lord, that God says, I'm going to give you my spirit now to live within you. God reigns with inside us. And that is so hard for us to understand. It, it's a very difficult thing. Matter of fact, Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. I'll turn there real quick. If you would, please. Go to Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. Keep going. Past Romans, 1 Corinthians. And you get to Galatians. Really small book. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. We'll bring one to you. I've sort of been spouting out the scripture here, but we'll turn to this one. Galatians chapter 2. Bless you. Verse 20. Galatians 2.20. We know this. If we were to back up in scripture to the very beginning in Genesis, which we did a few months ago, we learned this, that we were created in whose image? Whose image were we created in? God's, right? We were created in God's image. That's, first of all, a step back and think, wow. And I know in Ephesians 2.10, it says that we are God's workmanship. We are his masterpiece. We, we are created with incredible value. And I'm sitting there thinking, wow. Created in God's image with incredible value, with purpose. And then we come to Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. And it says this. And Paul's talking about here how he tried to keep the law. He couldn't do it. So finally he gave up and surrendered. And in verse 20 says, I myself no longer live, but Christ lives in me. So that I might live in this earthly body, trusting in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I'm not one of those who treats the grace of God as meaningless, for if we could be saved by keeping law, then there was no need for Christ to die. But there was need for him to die, because we couldn't keep the law. And it's no longer I who lives, but it's Christ who lives in me. There's more to God living in me than I'll ever understand. Here's the fourth thing. God has more for us. God has more for us. He is a very generous father. In 2 Samuel, the Old Testament, there's a story of David. And some of you probably remember the story of King David and he going from being a boy, a giant killer, to where he becomes a king. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, there's a story about David, and it's right after, if you remember the story about Bathsheba, Bathsheba is this beautiful woman who was taking a bath, it's very simple to remember, bath, Bathsheba, on top of a building, and King David was on top of another building, he should have been out the war fighting as the king should have been, but instead he was a little lazy, chilling at the palace, takes a peek over, sees Bathsheba bathing, just more than one glance and a stare, then a lust, and then a go get that woman, and then he commits adultery, gets her pregnant, has her husband killed. He's the king, right? He's a man after God's heart. Just a reminder that life is messy and we all mess up, right? And he, he's terribly broken and understands what he's doing is wrong, but it doesn't hit him. 
until the prophet Nathan comes to him. And Nathan has this conversation with David and he tells his story. He said, hey, there's two men in a certain town. One was rich, one was poor. Rich man owned many sheep and cattle. Poor man owned nothing but a little lamb. He worked so hard to buy. He raised that little lamb and grew up with his children. It ate from the man's own plate, drank from his cup. It was his pet, right? Cuddled in his arms like a baby daughter. And one day a guest arrived at the home of the rich man. Instead of killing the lamb for his own flocks for food, he took the poor man's lamb and killed it and served it to the guest. Oh, David was so mad. He's hearing this story from Nathan. He's like, oh, that's wrong. That guy should be put you know, in prison. He should be killed. He should, there should be justice done here. And Nathan says, you're that man. David just, he just hits him. I've stolen Bathsheba from another man. And it hits him. His sin just hits him. And Nathan was sent by God to help understand his sin. But listen to what Nathan says. He goes, you're that man. The Lord, the God of Israel says, I anointed you king of Israel, saved you from the power of Saul. I gave you his house, wives, kingdom of Israel and Judah. And if that had not been enough, I would have given you much, much more. Did you hear that? God's saying, David, I had so much more for you. I'm a generous God. I want to give you more, more, more. But you've separated yourself from me. See, our God is a generous God. He wants to give us more. But a lot of times we run from God, we separate ourselves from God, or we just disconnect from that vine that we need to abide in. We don't get it. Luke chapter 11, New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, third book, Luke chapter 11. Jesus is sharing some stories again, teaching with great emphasis. And he starts talking about the generosity of a heavenly father. Luke chapter 11, verses 9 to 13, as he's using more illustrations, talking about prayer and how we should pray. He says in verse 9, so I tell you, keep on asking and you'll be given what you ask for. Keep on looking and you'll find. Keep on knocking, the door will be open. For everyone who asks, receives. Everyone who seeks, finds. And the door is open to everyone who knocks. Now listen, he says this about our Heavenly Father. Your Father, if your children ask, if your children ask for a fish, do you give them a snake instead? Dads, think about this. My son just asked for a fish. I think I'll give him a snake. We don't do that, right? Jesus goes on to say, or if they ask for an egg, do you give them a scorpion instead? Of course not. If you, if you sinful people, Jesus, talk, goes, Jesus says, if you sinful people, you know how to give good gifts to your children, right? How much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. Jesus is saying, we have a generous Heavenly Father. He gives. He gives. He gives. He has so much more to give that sometimes we just don't know how to ask. And he wants to, do you hear what he said? He wants to give us his Holy Spirit. God, your Spirit working. As Pastor Dave was up here leading us in worship, he was praying that God's Spirit just be here and reign within us. Because what more would we want on a Sunday morning as we're worshiping for God's spirit to be here as we sing to him? We have a very generous God. We go back to John 10 and we realize that Jesus, Jesus, who's going to defeat death, sin, and Satan, Mr. Kleptomaniac, at the cross and then at the tomb when he resurrects from the dead, he is a victorious God, right?
He says, I want to give you new life. I want to give you a life that's going to change you. And this new life is not just about a heavenly thing. This abundant life is about a resurrected life now. One author said this, it's a real life and genuine life. It's an active and vigorous life, devoted to God, blessed, in a portion even in this world of those who put their trust in Christ. But after the resurrection to be consummated by new ascensions and to last forever. He's saying, listen, this new life that Jesus wants to give, it's a victorious life. It's a generous life. It's a supreme above all other lives, that of the resurrected body of Jesus Christ life but here on earth. But life happens, right? And dreams end, and we get defeated a few times, and we forget about that we were created to have a new life in sharing with an undefeated God. Y'all remember elementary school? Think back, we're sitting in one right now, okay? Before, um, when we get here, we get things set up. I sort of go back in the hallway and sort of walk through, talk through, and pray things out. And, and I was looking out at the playground. Playgrounds today are so much more cool than they were back in the day. I mean, still, I love, here's what I love about elementary school, okay? Not math, science, or reading. Sorry, elementary teachers, if there's anyone here. Sorry about that, okay? I love recess, okay? Next to lunch, recess was the bomb, okay? Think about what recess was, okay? Recess was not math, not science, not reading. It was fun. You know what's better than recess? Recess outside. Okay? That's the only thing that could make recess better was getting outside and having recess. In my school, out in the country, okay, when they plowed out, especially in the snow in the winter, when they plowed, they made these huge piles of snow, okay? And before there was rules and regulations and how people acted at recess, we were on top of those piles of snow, Okay? We play king of the hill. And when you're five foot nothing, 160 something, okay, you are king of the hill. That's why I love recess, okay? Nobody pushed me off that hill. And I loved it. It was fun, okay? But here's the thing. You know what's better than recess outside in the snow? Recess outside when there's no snow and you can get out on the playground and play all the other games, okay? That was even more fun because we could play tag. Now, referencing back to my size, tag wasn't exactly the best game for me, okay? First one out, right? Just like dodgeball. Last one chosen, first one out. Because I was not like, like Mr. Ninja, I was like the ball. Okay, so like, I'm out. Okay, cool. So what that left for me was this, the playground, okay? You had the slide, you had the teeter-totter. You had um, the merry-go-round, monkey bars. We had all those things, and I loved them, okay? Monkey bars. It was a little challenge, okay, with the weight, but I still pretended like there was a pool of sharks and I was gonna hold on for life and go across, you know? And for me, it actually was a challenge, like, could I go to two bars instead of one? So that was a challenge for me, right, okay? Teeter-totter, that was, as long as there's two kids on the other side, <laughs> I can't, can't say that without laughing. <laughs> I tried to find larger friends to sit across from me, okay, to help me out, but, they liked it because they were always up in the air, so that was fun. But anyway, for them. But the teeter-totter was fun. Slide was awesome because I picked up a lot of velocity going down that slide, okay? And that was definitely fun, okay? Teeter-totter, you guys remember, or merry-go-round, as you were going around the merry-go-round, you just hold on for life, you remember that? Some of it's like, that was so fun. Oh, I'm sorry. 
Playgrounds are awesome, aren't they? I sort of reverted, my bad. Um, but I love the playground. It was so fun. And now, if you go out today's playgrounds, they're like fortresses. They're awesome. I mean, there's a lot of hiding places, and the bridge is all over, and it makes you want to be a kid again, right? So see so you off to church, on the playground, bring a picnic, and we'll have fun, okay? Um, I can go more than two bars now in the monkey bars. I'm pretty excited, okay? But here's the thing. Life isn't always a playground, is it? Life isn't always a playground. The dreams get smashed really quick. Sometimes it's messy. Sometimes there's bullies. Sometimes there's people out there that are meaner than us. Sometimes we lose in games, and sometimes the swing breaks. Just saying, you know? It did once for me. But anyway. But here's the thing. We, we serve an undefeated God who looks at our life, and we say, man, I, I, it, this should be fun. It should be like a playground, but it isn't fun. And then our undefeated God looks down at us and says, don't you know where you stand with me? Deuteronomy 7.21 says this, Do not be afraid of those nations, for the Lord your God is among you. He is a great and awesome God. God is among you, and he's a great and awesome God. And when life isn't a playground, we need to go back and remember those truths that God loves you more than you'll ever know. We need to remember that there's more to God, and he's put more in us, and he wants more for us. That's God, our great and awesome God. And there was a time when, when a group of people, you know, we go back to the book of Exodus, and over two million people were in a place, and we're not going to call it a home because they were in slavery in Egypt. Sort of a home, right? But they were miserable. And they heard about the God of their ancestors they worshipped, and they thought, I don't know if that's really real. But Moses came along and said, I'm going to free you because an undefeated God has come here and sent me here to free you and take you to a new life. An abundant life, better than here in Egypt. See, a lot of us right now are enslaved to a lot of things in our life. We're not experiencing freedom like we should. Moses took those people out. They went through the wilderness. Exodus chapter 17. Why don't you turn there with me? Genesis, Exodus, second book in the Old Testament. Exodus 17. And in Exodus 17, we read it. But the Lord's command, the people left as they were out in the wilderness going from place to place, packing up their tents. Can you imagine two million people packing up tents and just going, you know? And Moses and his people are leading along. Verse 1 or verse 2, they left the desert. Once more, the people grumbled and complained to Moses, Give us water to drink, they demanded. Moses says, Quiet. Why are you arguing with me? Why are you testing the Lord? But tormented by first, they could thirst, they continued to complain. Why did you take us out of Egypt? Why did you bring us here? Our children, our livestock, we're all going to die. Moses pleaded with the Lord, what should I do with these people? They're about to stone me. The Lord said to Moses, take your shepherd's staff, you know, the one you used when you struck the water of the Nile. Call some of the leaders of Israel. Walk on ahead of the people. I'll meet you by the rock at Mount Sinai. I love it. God's like, I'll meet you by the rock. It's like, man. Isn't that cool? Like God's, hey, meet you over at the coffee shop. Yeah, I'll meet you at school. Hey, meet you over at the playground. That's a cool thing. Here. God's here. I'll meet you at the rock, Mount Sinai. Strike the rock, water will come pouring out. People will be able to drink. Moses did just as he was told. And as the leaders looked on, waters gushed out. Moses named the place of Massa, the place of testing, and Meribah with the place of arguing. Because the people argued with Moses and tested the Lord, saying, is the Lord going to take care of us or not? 
Does it sound like that sometimes? God, where you at? Where you at, God? What are you doing? This isn't fair. This is tough. You know, the first time these people face hardship and tough times, they complain, right? We saw that a lot. We understand life is tough. We complain. But what these people forgot is that God was with them. They end up naming that place Mass of Meribah, which means a place of arguing and testing, because they wondered, is God here or not? The answer to that is, yes, he is here. Yes, he is with you. And yes, he will do something for you. That's why I'm saying sometimes God doesn't put us on a playground Sometimes we are somewhere else and it doesn't feel so much as fun as it could be, right? And we cry out. And when we cry out all those things, if we just listen, if we're just careful enough, we might hear God say, yes, I am here. And, and yes, I do care. And yes, I will do something because I'm an undefeated God. And in spite of that truth that God was with these people, he reminded them through an incredible miracle, but they weren't done. There's still misfortune ahead of them. Matter of fact, in the very next verses, while the people were still there, the warriors of Amalek attacked them. Great. And we're not thirsty anymore, but now we've got people attacking us, an actual army. In those moments, what do you do? I'm going to say this as a believer in Jesus Christ, understanding all these things, here's my responsibility. I need to stand and fight. I'm not talking hand-to-hand -hand combat here, okay? But an attitude of determination and not giving up. An attitude of truth that this is who God called me to be. And he's equipped me. So I stand for what is right. When I see an injustice, I need to say something as a Christian. If I see somebody who's maybe giving up on me, I'm going to choose not to give up on them. If I see somebody who's alone, I need to stand with them if they're alone. If something's going on, they need help. Not abandoning them in their time of need. That's what it means to stand and to be determined and to fight for them. More importantly, you don't do it alone. We don't do it alone. If you read on in this, it says in verse 10, so Joshua did what Moses commanded. He led his men out to fight the army of Amalek. Meanwhile, Moses, Aaron, and Hur went to the top of a nearby hill. As long as Moses held up the staff with his hands, the Israelites had the advantage. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites gained the upper hand. So here's the thing. What I love about this story is Moses really wanted to fight, but God said, Moses, you're going to go up on top of the hill and hold up the staff. As long as you hold up the staff, they're going to win. It was like that was his role. We all have different roles and parts as we serve in the church and we serve as a body of Christ. Some of us do one thing, some of us do another. Here's the thing, though. What has God called you to do? Go do it. Maybe he's called you to be down on the battlefield. Maybe he's called you to stand up on the mountain and hold up the staff. I'm not sure which one it is, but I'm sure God's told you. And the thing was in the story, when Moses got tired, he's like, ah, oh, put the staff down. You know, you see sometimes football players, they hold up their helmets, third quarter, fourth quarter, you know, kick off, you know. They don't do that the whole game. Did you notice that? They're tired, they put them down, right? How long do it, can we stand around picking things up or reaching for stuff like, okay, I got to put my arm down, it's tired. We circled up with a group of guys one time to pray, and we were praying and praying, and there was a long prayer my shoulders started to cramp up big time. Ever happened to you? And you're like, God, I love praying to you. Somebody say amen, though, please. <laughs> Gotta put my arms down. Being real, being honest, right? How about we just pray with this? Hold hands down. It'll be good, right? It's so hard, but here's what happened. Moses couldn't keep his arms up. So Aaron and her on both sides said, let's put a rock here. Go ahead and sit down. Good. Save strength. So he's sitting down. Now it's a little bit easier, right? But he's, his arms looking, and they're like, hey, you hold that arm. I'll hold this arm. So now they hold their arms up. Staff's up. We're winning. 
what Moses was, even though he was fighting a, with an undefeated God and being victorious, he still needed people to come beside him. That's the church. It's sometimes it's so hard to live a victorious life knowing that we serve an undefeated God. And that's why God says, that's why I got people to come alongside you too, to encourage you. And sometimes you're going to be the one holding other, other people and encouraging them. And it wasn't the end of the story because, see, as soon as Moses got done there, guess what? The next day there's probably another story. And the next day there's another issue. That's the thing with us, too. You can be victorious today, but guess what? You got another tomorrow. What are you going to do tomorrow? Remember, you got a victorious God walking with you, right? 1 John 4, 12 says, says this, No one has ever seen God, but if we love each other, God lives in us, and his love is brought to full expression in us. People can clearly see God, perfect, complete God, when we're loving others. Our undefeated and mighty God lives in us, works in us, through us as we love others. We're going to watch a video, and the worship team's going to come up. We're going to close in a song. And this video, I just chose it just because I was watching it a while back, and I thought, you know what? Sometimes this is where we're at. Life isn't a playground, but you know what? As a church... Serving a victorious God, an undefeated God, he equips us. There's so much more in the love of God and what he's put in us. So when we as a church decide, you know what? I'm going to be victorious today in how I live for God. That's my attitude. I'm going to choose to serve to be victorious under this undefeated God. And I'm going to walk with my brothers and sisters in Christ. And if somebody's in need, I'm coming beside them. Because the victorious God lives within me. And there's going to be days when you're going to be the one feeling defeated. And I pray that somebody else in the church, somebody alongside you will come along with you and say, let me walk with you. Let me hold up your arm and put a seat down and wait I'll sit next, next to you. So as you watch this video, just pray, all right, God, through all this and undefeated God, what do I need to hear from you today? You know, we serve a victorious God, an undefeated God. And in life, as you watch that, maybe there's certain stories that you can relate to and say, yeah, that's my story. And, or that sort of my that's somebody I know. You think about how people just came beside them and showed them they could find hope and they could find peace and love. And I'm thinking about the Bible. You know what the Bible is full of? Stories in which there was defeat and hurt and pain, followed by stories of hope and victory and love. And so when you read through the Bible, you see all these stories. They give us hope. It's like, you know, like with David. Oh, broken, right? When Nathan talked to him, he renewed his relationship with God. It was an incredible change, incredible story. There's victory in here. There's victory in here. And God says, I want you to have that victory too. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, as we sing this song to you, Lord, I, I thank you that you are an undefeated God, a victorious God. And we stand as believers in Jesus Christ. If we've confessed with our mouth and believe in our hearts that you are Lord, you're our Savior. We stand justified before you. We stand holy and blameless before you. We have a new position in you. And in that new position, you've called us now. Now let's go be victorious. Because of your love for us, because there's so much more about you that we're discovering and that's in us. You have so much more you want to give us. You want to see us live that victorious life. And God, we want to live a victorious life. Lord, if we need to confess something, let us confess it now. If you laid a person upon our heart that we need to reach out to, Lord, help us stop thinking about it and help us go do it. 
Help us to be victorious as we live for you, Lord. Lord, we sing to you now. We love you. We sing praises to you. In thy name we pray.